Hey everybody, this is Lenny Rutledge from Sanctuary and you're listening to Focus on Metal. Hey, Metalhead, Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to October and another episode of Focus on Metal. Besides being an absolute clusterfuck, 2020 also happens to be the anniversary year for a ton of albums, and we've done quite a few of them already this year. And this week, we're going to do yet another one. So February 27th, 1990, Epic Records puts out Into the Mirror Black by the band Sanctuary. This would be their second and final album for Epic Records, and we wouldn't hear studio output from the band again until 2014's The Year the Sun Died. And of course, that album came out on Century Media, which is the label the band is still signed to. And this year, to celebrate the anniversary of Into the Mirror Black, Sanctuary is going all out with a nice reissue package of the album. And they're making it available in either a two-CD or four-LP set. What you get in that is the original album, all remastered. You also get some uh, couple of demos, like three or four demos, and then a whole a live set as well. So good anniversary package from this album. So I hear you asking, what are you guys going to do to celebrate? Well, I'll tell you. This week we have on guitarist Lenny Rutledge from Sanctuary, and then also we have on the guy who produced the album, Howard Benson. So a crap load of good stuff this week. So we're just going to kick it off by heading into uh, Richie's chat with Lenny Rutledge. Yeah, is that Lenny? Yes. Hi, it's Richie here for the interview. So, have you have you ever played in Ireland? Yeah, it was a long time ago. Um, I'm try- I think it was the only time we've ever played there was with, uh, I believe it was with Megadeth. Um, we played there a couple of times, uh, but that was, I think that was it. I think that was in 1988. Oh, on oh with um when Megadeth had Chuck Beeler and Jeff Young in the band. Yeah, in fact, uh, that was like our first tour, you know, our first big tour. That was the first time we came to Europe was with, with you know, that was, actually that was our first stop. Uh, we we came over with them and we played in Belfast and um, what's the other big city there? Dublin. Yep, those are the places. Okay, so if, if it was in 88, were you in the show in Antrim where Mustaine said the things on stage that got him... Um, Escorted out in a bulletproof bus. Well, I, we were there. Okay. I don't, I, don't remember, I don't remember the bulletproof bus part. Yeah. But I, I do remember um, him on stage. He, after the show, he kind of was just rambling. I, he was rambling during the song, talking about the IRA. I, if I remember correctly, one of the shows was like almost like in a gymnasium type of thing, and. Um, they stopped the show for a while, and um, I think that maybe there was a bomb threat or something like that. Okay. <laughs> so you, yeah. So were you still at the venue when he said all that? Could could you hear anything in the crowd that made you think, "Wow, yeah. something's going on"? Yeah, yeah, it wasn't good. It was kind of a weird situation. He was really drunk then. <laughs> 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 that was, you know, that that was a really interesting tour for us because. You know, those first two nights, 
you know, we're we're still young guys who've never really been even been to, you know, out of the country. And we we cut, we came over there to play with them. And I can't remember which city it was in. It was either Dublin or Belfast. But Dave got a brand new guitar, and we were doing a sound check. And one of the roadies left the guitar on the drum riser or really near it. And during our sound check, our drummer hit with one of the cymbals and the cymbal stand edged off the edge of the drum riser and the cymbal went down and it cut a chunk of, a, of out of Dave's brand new guitar. It literally was delivered that day or something, or he brought it with him from America. I mean, I remember him opening it up and looking at it and it took a chunk out of his guitar, just like if you took an ax to it. Oh man. I thought that was it. I thought, okay, here we came over here to play like 25 shows with Megadeth. We're going home now. Okay. And he'd already, he'd already produced a record, your record at that stage, hadn't he? Yeah. 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 For sure. Yeah. So you, he was was all right about it though. Okay. What did, what did you learn from him as a producer from, from Dave? You know, I mean, it was, it was our first time in, you know, the studio and I, I think we were so blown away and in awe by him and everything that was going on right at that time. He was more of a mentor than anything, you know. He would he would always give us advice on, you know, how to handle ourselves and, you know, what to do, what to, you know, kind of how, how to present ourselves and, you know, what to expect uh, on tour and, and the kind of, you know, to, you know, basically one of his uh, mottos was to eat shit, smile, and ask for more, you know. <laughs> um, I mean, he really taught us a lot, I think, you know, and, and a lot of it, I think just being around and, and being able to see, you know, what he did and, you know, it was very inspiring. I mean, I don't know. I don't think he would consider himself a role model because, I mean, at the time, you know, I'm sure he was he was having a good time. But for us at the time, you know, it was it was quite the education for us. But um, as far as a producer, you know, I mean, I think this was Dave's first time really producing. And I mean, I think he was learning and we were learning and we were just having a good time and loving every minute. I mean, for for us, that was like a dream come true. It's something that didn't, you know, it doesn't normally happen. You know, that we, when we met him and everything, it just like that to us, we were just waking up every day going, wow, is this really happening? Mm. You know, when you went in to do Into the Mirror Black, I'll get into the reissue now in a few minutes, Lenny. Um, Did you want Dave Mustaine to do it or did you want Howard Benson to do it? Well, yeah, I've kind of been asked this before and there was, there was some rumors about how this all went down and. I've heard this from a couple of people. I have, you know, I have not talked to Dave Mustaine since back before Mirror Black. I know Warl and Jim ended up, you know, touring with, with Dave on uh Gigantor and everything. And, you know, I think everything's okay and all that, but I heard there was kind of some bad blood because Dave wanted to produce Mirror Black. But from what I remember of that time, cause we'd kind of, you know, he had, he was really taken off then. And, you know, we were kind of doing our thing and trying to get, you know, trying to make a name for ourselves and everything. And he seemed like he was really distracted. I know he was having some, you know, trying to get his, his shit together as well. And, you know, he struggled with a lot of things too. So we'd kind of heard that it, it probably wouldn't have worked out very well for us. So, you know, we just thought he was pretty much not really all that interested, but we heard later that maybe he was a little, uh, 
not not that happy that he he didn't you know get a chance to produce. Now I don't know. You'd have to ask him. I don't know what he thinks about it because, like I said, I haven't really talked to him. I just kind of I heard a rumor. I, I mean, I hope we're all good. Um, but as far as Howard Howard, you know, we weren't sure what we were going to do. And, and another thing that we were always trying to do was we kind of felt like we were more than just a thrash band. And you know, being with Dave Mustaine and everything was an awesome education and we owe him a hell of a lot. We can't say enough nice things about him, but there was another thing that we were trying to kind of, you know, make our own niche and make sure that we weren't just a thrash band. Cause we, we didn't really think of ourselves as just a thrash band. And I think we were kind of getting in kind of in that, um, kind of pigeonholed in that genre. And I mean, I, I think we can do a, you know, a lot of things, you know, we I mean, we can play with, we could play with Megadeth or uh, Testament or Queensryche or something, you know what I mean? So that that's kind of what we wanted to do is we wanted to make sure that, you know, we had a little bit more of a broad uh, range. And, and I think maybe not so consciously, but one of the, you know, a little bit, we wanted to, you know, just kind of make our own way and get out from, you know, just being a thrash band. Hmm. So Howard, Howard was... He was suggested by um, some or by our manager, I believe, at the time, and um, he came up and met us. And he seemed like he had some pretty good ideas, but you know, we weren't sure what to expect. And you know, the story goes that they sent him up here to kind of save our record deal because we had heard that we they may not have signed us for another option, and we had to produce a decent demo. Howard came up. And we recorded uh, Mirror Black, uh, Future Tense, and another version of I'm Insane. And we sent that to the record company, and they were happy. So uh, they decided to go forward with our second record. So Yeah, but you know, that was the time when grunge was just starting to come out. So I think the record companies were all kind of resetting Hmm. But w- when you look at Howard Benson's discography back then, and I know since he did you guys, he's done a lot heavier stuff, but some of the bands he did were like Bang Tango and Pretty Boy Floyd. And now he's been to- sent to you guys to produce y- your music. You-, you must have looked at that and went, this guy mightn't be right for us. He's he's not into the heavier music. Yeah. In fact, we did. And we weren't sure you know, it was going to work out, but he seemed to kind of, you know, at the at the time, I think he was really in our court. He wanted to help us. I don't know. I, I think it was kind of an experiment for him and us. And I agree. And you know, the funny thing is, is I actually was a Bang Tango fan. I thought I thought their record was pretty good. He he gave it to me, and I was actually pretty impressed. I thought it was cool. I kind of like that Guns N' Roses vibe, that kind of Bang Tango, you know, whatever. Pretty Boy Floyd, not as much. But the funny thing is, is on uh, Mirror Black, I actually used. Um, one of Pretty Boy Floyd's guitars for a recording part of Mirror Black. Okay. So. Okay. Yeah. Now, w- when you did the record with him, what sort of producer was he? Was he was he a producer that was more of a motivator, or was he a producer that was more of a musician that would actually go in and show you what what he wanted? Howard's a an amazing musician, and that was really cool because I mean he he could actually you know, he could suggest things. I don't know that he suggested a lot. He may have suggested, you know, like maybe bending a melody here and there or something. But I mean, he could, he could give you an idea and he could, 
you know, literally speak in the language of musicians because he's a great musician. I mean, he's he's the type of guy who can sit down and, you know, belt out a song on the piano and everything. I was always really impressed by that. So, yeah, I think that really helped because, you know, a lot of producers aren't like that. A lot of producers, they just kind of have a good feel for the studio and they know how to, you know, get a band um, motivated and and pointed in the right direction. And I think he did a little bit of both. You know, we hit it off pretty good for the most part. I think that we were both from different camps, you know, like you said, he was a little bit different of a producer and we were kind of like a little more of the rough metal dudes. And um, I think he definitely made us a better band though. I mean, he made us think and look at things differently. Mm. So, you know, in a way, I really think it was a, it was a good thing. It was a way to grow for us. And that's one thing I, I'm kind of proud of is that, you know, every one of our records, has a different sound to it and it it, feel, it doesn't feel like we just did the same record over and over definitely um how did you take howard suggestions for changing the songs because you you either wrote all the songs or you co-wrote the songs um did you resist his the changes or were you open to them you know i think it was eventually he convinced us about a few ideas i know at first he had suggested a lot of things because he he is based in more of a pop background. Yeah. And we resisted that a little bit because, first of all, I mean, you know, that's not really our, our base and our fans, you know. And, and, I mean, we're all, as musicians, we were all fans of, you know, some popular music and 70s rock and stuff like that. But we wanted to make sure that, you know, we were happy with it and, and you know, we didn't turn off any of our fans and, so I think there was things he suggested, really great ideas. From what I remember, yes, there were times where we resisted, but I think we found middle ground a lot, you know, and we and we 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 worked it out. He had great suggestions though, like parts for, you know, a lot of times for drums, you know, parts for drums because because I think producers, especially with that kind of background, they they know, you know, they kind of know like the where to set certain things. And I remember working on drums and timing and, you know, you know, maybe try this and this part and cut that a little shorter. And there was a lot of, a lot of that. And I, I, I really think he made us a better band. Mm. Was he tough on you, Lenny, in the studio? Can you think of any one song or one part that he really pushed you on? You know, he was a little tough on all of us um, at first. Um, I'm trying to think of a specific time. I know there was one time where, Sean was recording a, a solo and it, it took uh, many hours. And I think he had, I think he had the assistant engineer finish that one up. You know, I think there was a lot of uh, kind of fun. Um, you know, we were kind of screwing with each other, you know, in a fun, fun way. But, you know, I don't remember anything specific that, you know, I, I know that when you spend time with anybody in a studio for a month, there is tension at times. And, mm -hmm. and there was that sometimes. But it seemed like we always, you know, we always pulled it in and and were professional. Hmm. And there's nine songs on the record. Did you write more songs than the nine that ended up on it? Yeah. Um, well, I'm insane was one of the songs that was going to be on. It was first. It was going to be on Refuge Denied. Then we kind of re we rewrote it a little bit, changed mm -hmm. it up. We were going we to put it on Mirror, and it didn't end up on Mirror. And 
Yeah, well, it's it's also it's on the new release, you know, a new version of it. Yeah. So that'll be cool. And I, there was a song at one time called Blood Tide, and I think it was around that time. I don't know what happened to that song. I don't know if we ever had a recording of it, but it just kind of one of those songs that disappeared. It was a song that um, Whirl and uh, Sean wrote. Okay. And uh, yeah, I think I think that was going to be on Mirror, and it it didn't. Uh, didn't happen. Do you remember anyone from Epic Records, uh, or the label coming in, listening to the record, or did you ever get a feeling that they wanted the record to be maybe moved in a, a more commercial direction? I don't remember anybody coming down. I don't, you know, that doesn't mean it didn't happen. Yeah. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, some of my memory's a little hazy. I remember that, that we recorded in Sound City Studio, which was interesting. You know, at the time, I didn't know that much about the history of it, but I don't remember record company people coming down there. Mm-hmm. Now, when you did the when you, the remaster of this, um, did you consider getting Howard to remaster it? No, and, and that's not that's you know not not any um, uh, nothing against Howard. Um, I don't you know I to tell you the truth, I haven't talked to Howard. I wish I should probably reach out to him. Um, you know, we just we just loved what Zeus did, you know, um in on the year the son died and and um Zeus is a big part of the family. Yeah. He's like a you know, he's like a fifth member and you know, he's a he's a good friend. And he really wanted to see what he could do to help us out on this this will I mean, this will be the last legacy release pretty much and you know, for him to to be able to remix the live tracks and the demos and remaster mirror black. I mean, he was really excited about it and I knew for sure what he could do. And I mean, I'm sure Howard could do a great, great job too. Um, but we just thought it would be kind of cool to, to have oh. Zeus's touch on it. Now, when mirror black came out and you heard it for the first time, were you happy with the way it sounded back then? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. You know, I, I don't remember not being happy. I'm sure there was probably times, you know, where you, you know, are a little picky about certain things and there's always compromises that are made. I don't remember being, you know, really unhappy about it. So I think we were pretty satisfied. Mm. Now you did a video on, I think future tense was the single from that record. It's kind of hard to pick a single from it though. It's not really an album with a lot of singles on it. Yeah. So like was future tense, was that your decision to release that as a single? I think so. That seemed like, you know, um, a song that, you know, a lot of people could enjoy. Uh, maybe kind of like, I don't know if you'd call it a crossover song or whatever, but I just seemed like, I don't, I don't, again, you, you're right. I mean, it's not, not like a, a pop song or something, but probably one of the more uh, easier to um, digest for the, you know, populace, I guess. Mm. Um yeah, we had, we had a good time with that video. You know, we were out in the middle of nowhere, somewhere up in the hills in Los Angeles somewhere, and there was a, like a forest fire that had recently come through there. And I remember that, that day because that day was, uh, I think it was either the day uh, the day of or the day after Stevie Ray Vaughan uh, died in that helicopter crash. Yeah. Yeah, so our, our management was managed, was management with Stevie Ray Vaughan too so it was a big deal yeah yeah now the the masters for Mirror Black do they still exist and who owns them uh, CBS or, or Sony Sony owns them 
Okay, so you didn't you didn't get an opportunity to even go in and remix it. No, and see the thing is now is that I, I don't know if these record companies know where this stuff is. You know, yeah. I'm sure it's somewhere in a giant vault with millions of you know two inch reels, and um, they just I don't think they want to spend the effort trying to find them. We 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 requested it, but this was a really difficult thing to make happen. In fact. There have been so many times in this process that we thought it wouldn't happen. We we started talking about this a couple years ago. We really started working hard on it in September of, it was actually August of 2019. That's when we started to open up dialogue with Sentry uh, Media, and they were really interested in this. It took us six months to just get to the, to the point where we got a yes, because Sony and Century Media had to come to an agreement because Sony technically owns it. They own Century Media, but, you know, it's not quite that easy. Then it was, you know, are we going to be able to have the masters and possibly remix or what are we going to do and what can we release and what can't we release, release? And there were so many different forms that it was going to take. And then finally, you know, sometime in January, we got the green light to release the live stuff and the demos and remaster and everything. So it was pretty exciting. And then of course COVID comes and, you know, there's, <laughs> you know, that kind of derailed us a little bit too, you know, cause we had a tour planned for September of 2020 and we were going to play all of, all of mirror black and, and we still will, you know, in a, a probably, a, you know, next year when it, when everybody's over this COVID thing, hopefully, hopefully we all come through it. Hmm. All right. Now, where where were all the shows uh, postponed? Were they all in Europe, or was there some in the U.S.? Well, we were starting U.S. when when they started, you know, putting out the word that it wasn't going to, ha- you know, they were going to start canceling other shows. So we didn't bother. But we already had shows that were booked in Europe, and those all canceled out, of course. So, hmm. Lenny, do you think Europe got you guys earlier on m- quicker than the American audience? Absolutely. Yeah, I seem to get that a lot from a lot of bands that, especially the heavier bands, that the European audience just get them straight away, and the American audience are a lot harder to to get. Yeah, that, totally. I mean, it's it's always. I mean, you you know, whenever we go to Europe, it's like we you know we feel like we're right at home. You know, they just yeah, it's it's awesome. Mm. Now, when Zeus remastered the record, did you leave him do it himself, or did you? Did you go and say, look, I, I want, can you maybe do this to the to it, or maybe can you do that? We pretty much just let him go for it, and he would send us versions and say, hey, you know, how does this work? I can warm this up or do this, you know, and then uh, same with, you know, on the remix of, of the live stuff. And, um, yeah, I mean, there was a little bit of back and forth, but, you know, he's got a pretty good sense of, what he needs to do, and um, I mean, he, he did a great job. He definitely beefed it up a bit. Mm. Now, when you are going out to play this album live, are there any tracks from it that you've never played live before? We haven't played... Uh, no, you know what? I don't think so. At one time, we, we had this conversation, and at one time, we have played um, Epitaph and Communion, but not very many times. All the other songs have been played um, periodically here and there, mm. um, but communion, communion, and epitaph were uh, 
barely ever played. In fact, I think we only played communion twice. I know we played it in Japan and, and, uh, one other time, but I mean, I, yeah, there was, those were songs that I, I didn't know I had to, I had to relearn them. So, okay. What's the most difficult one to play? Communion. No yeah. doubt about it. That's probably because that's probably why you didn't play it that often. <laughs> yes, could be, could be. <laughs> so t- tell me about the demos because I, I know I know you brought out the de- the demos a couple of years ago, Inception, I think it was, and you said you found them in a, in an attic somewhere or a barn. Did, did you find the demos on this at the same time? No. So the demos on on this were. Um, so those were recorded by Howard Benson and we actually just had those, um, on a digital master. Um, so those, those we've had for a while. And then some, our, our man, our old manager sent us the, um, the live, he had the live two inch. So we, we were able to mix that. That was something that, um, Sony never had their hands on, so they couldn't lose it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and you, you, you didn't want to touch those at all. You didn't want to put overdubs on them or, or add to them. Nope. And so that was like something we, we talked about because, I mean, there's a couple, I don't want to say cringeworthy moments, but there's a couple moments where, you know, it's like, oh, God, boy, I sure could have done that a little bit better. But, you know, and, and I don't know if a lot of people know this, but, you know, fans out there may not know this, but a lot of times when, people, when bands record live, they go in and they fix that stuff. And we could have, but we didn't. Um, we wanted it to be really genuine. And, you know, it's there's not a whole lot of uh, live stuff out there with Whirl on it. And we just wanted it to be, we wanted it to be how it was that night. You know, the only thing we did was, there's a couple times where there's some weird noise or feedback for too long during, like, in between songs. And we might have we cut that out or something, but that's it. But we didn't. We didn't re-record anything. Mm. I got a couple of questions, Lenny, on the on the live show that's on it. Um, I believe it was released more or less as a promo. Was it only recorded audio only, or is there any video of it? Just audio. Okay, that that must that must be a right bummer. Now. Yeah. Yeah, and who had the full show? Who, who did it, or no, who, no, who had it? Who had it? Because I think it was only six songs originally, and now you've got more than you think you got nine or something on this one. Yeah. Um, so it was recorded by Westwood one and they actually sent the tapes to our uh, management at the time, strike force management. And then just recently within the last, I think it was the last five years, they sent them to me and said, here you go. You know, so we had them all. Okay. Okay. I think there's, there's, there's nine or 10 songs on there. I'm trying to remember. Yeah. I think, I think the original one was at six and I think this is nine or 10. Yeah. Yep. So that, that's great that you have the whole show now to release it. Yeah, yeah, it sounds good too. Yeah, yeah. So, what are you doing now on your downtime? Um, are you are you writing a lot, or are you recording the new record? We're writing. Um, we're demoing stuff. Um, everybody was here last weekend. We were going over songs, working stuff out. We're taking our time, making sure that you know we put something out that's uh, worthy. You know, we we're very aware that um, you know there's there's a legacy there, and we want. You know, we 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 would want world to be proud, so we want to make sure we do it right. Mm-hmm. So I just got a couple of questions, Lenny, before I leave you go. Um, when the band broke up after Mirror Black, what needed to change for the band to stay together? <laughs> That's a good question. 
Ah, boy. I think the, the members in the bands, the, the attitude and the partying and everything, that needed to change. You know, and that's pretty standard for guys that young that age and, you know, where we were starting to take off and there was egos. And, I mean, to me, that was that was a lot of it. There was a lot of drinking. There was, you know, drug use and stuff like that. And I just think that we overdid it and we, we weren't quite as um, tolerant with each other and and just stupid shit like that. And we needed to grow up, you know. And when we got back together in 2010, a lot of that stuff was much better. I don't want to say it was completely gone because we're, you know, still, you know, the same people. But um, I think we had grown up um, quite a bit. There was a lot more tolerance and acceptance. Um, but, you know, um, uh, yeah, so I would say that, that's that's mostly it. Mm-hmm. Now, did you have any contact with Sean or Jim about the reissue? Jim, yes. Jim, um Jim Jim uh, helped us out with the liner notes on it, and uh, he's pretty excited about it too. I still talk to Jim um, every now and then. He lives he lives a couple hours from me, so I see him every now and then. Um, Sean is my cousin, and I have not seen him for quite a few years. Sean's um, he's always been a little bit of a recluse kind of guy, and doesn't really have a lot to do with it. He's not really interested in the band stuff. He pretty much just gives us his blessing and doesn't really want anything to do with it either way. So, mm. um, you know, did, did you get any promoters trying to push it to get the four to five E out to play this record live or was there none of that at all? Uh, yeah. You know, it's funny because I have had people mention that, um, you know, and I, it's just probably not, something that's well well for sean there's no way he's not he's just definitely not interested um you know we've played with jim uh jim joined us on a show and and uh played a few songs with us and we had uh, jeff loomis up there and and jim so that was as close to the to the original as we could get it mm-hmm. F- final question lenny D- do you think epic records ever got you guys like that understood what sort of band you were no, I don't think so. I mean, I think they were trying, you know, I think it was just one of their, you know, Hey, we have to have, you know, a few of these types of bands on our roster and they, they probably really didn't. They, I think they were knee deep in, you know, more of the pop stuff. And, you know, I, I really don't, I mean, I don't fault them for anything, you know, I'm sure it was just, Hey, they, they wanted to snap up what was, what was hot at the time. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm grateful that, you know, we had a record deal and all that. I'm grateful for all the all the good things that happened. But I don't think so. I mean, a, a record company like Century Media, I mean, you know, nowadays, those guys, I mean, they, for the most part, they get it. I'm sure everybody could complain about their label in some way or another. But, you know, Epic was a little bit, I don't know. Yeah, it's like you said, I, I don't think they really got it. Hmm. I'll tell you how I, I got to to buy the record they had a deal back in ireland and probably in england at the time where they'd release a bunch of new records and if you bought like two you'd get like one or for half price or something like that so i think i bought your album with a, i think it was like burning tree or someone like that on the label and i remember bring, i remember bringing the album home and it was like the first thing that struck me was world's vocals i was like oh my god and you didn't yeah. you didn't really sound like anyone else at the time i i thought you were a heavier version and a faster version of queen's right yeah 
And I'm sure and you, you know what you got a lot of that. I'm that's, sure. Yeah, and you know what? That's kind of you know, in a way, that's a compliment. That's kind of like well, that's kind of what we were going for. I think you know, without really thinking about it. I mean, we never consciously said that, but you know, it's like we were into. We were into Metal Church and Queensryche, and I think we kind of came somewhere in between, you know, and we, we, you know, with a little dose of, you know, Megadeth in there or something, you know. Mm. So, Lenny, do you think, um, do you think you'll have the new record out before you you tour Mirror Black, the 30th anniversary, or are you going to wait till that's done? I don't know. We're 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 hoping we can record it. Um, I don't think it it's going to be recorded this year, but it could very well be recorded um, in the first half of next year. Um, that's what we're hoping. I, you know, I keep promising and telling people that it's going to happen. So, you know, I'm just, I'm optimistic. And but uh, we're we're not really in a hurry. You know, it's uh, we we would rather it be right than uh, hurry it. You know, because I mean, we could put something out right now if we wanted to, but um, I want it to be um, something that we can be proud of. Mm, I'm sure you want to get a new album out though with the new singer. Like you want people to hear him. Oh yeah. Record, you no, know. absolutely. I mean, yeah, it would help too, you know, because I mean, people want to hear you want know, what that's all about. Because a lot of people don't know, you know, a lot of people don't know what what it's going to be like, or you know, so that would help us out. Mm. I think your all your albums are like that, though. They're so different that it, I think when you bring out the new one, it's going to be different to the rest of them anyway. Even taking the singer out of it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, so Lenny, do you want to give everyone out? all the social media sites where they can buy the record or get in touch with the band yeah um i mean you can you can see uh on facebook it's just sanctuary uh sanctuary fans uh forward slash sanctuary fans i guess and then i i guess on uh oh boy joyce joseph is better at this than me but <laughs> you can find it you can find us on facebook century media and all that lenny it's been a pleasure talking to you Thank you, man. I appreciate it. Uh, yeah. Hopefully you can come out and see us. And if you do, make sure you come up and introduce yourself. I will, Lenny. All right. Have a good rest of the night. All right, man. You All too. Right. Take care of yourself. Bye. All right. And with that, why don't we swing over to the other side of the glass as we talk to producer Howard Benson about his memories of Sanctuary and Into the Mirror Black. Hey, how you doing? Hey, I'm good, Howard. It's Richie here for the interview. Twice you were uh, talking about Sanctuary. It's, I mean, honestly, a record I hadn't thought about. Okay. Well, ages. The first question I actually had for you, you've, you've already answered it. Uh, it's not an album you get asked about a lot. No, it's not. And I think a lot of it is that um, there, I just, I, did, I didn't really, I mean, I'll, I'm going to probably give you a lot of good copy here, but um, I didn't really enjoy doing it. And it, a lot of it, I think, had to do with. I was kind of assigned to do the record by, um, the, I think the A&R guy, and he was Bob Pfeiffer at the time. And um, he, he was an A&R guy for Columbia. And he was trying to get me a project to do for Columbia because he liked me as a producer. And he said to me, you know, hey, we have this band that, you know, um, Dave Mustaine did their first record and they're looking to change, the, you know, this and that. And, you know, do you, are you interested? And I was coming from... At that point in my career, I was it was so far le- so far to the extreme of what I was doing at that point or wanted to do, which was hit records. Like I wanted to make the records I ended up making. You know the ones with like you know you know you see my discography yeah. kind of records. Yeah, yeah. So Sanctuary 
I mean, I think I've made two records that were not in that world, and that was one was Sanctuary and one was uh, Sepultura. And both those records were extremely alien to me, like as far as the process, uh, the way they thought, the way they, it, it was it was more about the sound than it was about the songs. Like, like we spent so much time on Sanctuary trying to get Lenny and uh, Sean happy with the guitar sound. And I was trying to get good vocals out of Wall and you know, it was more the focus of the record was just about things I was just not, I honestly didn't care about because I wasn't like, I was more of like a David Foster, I envisioned myself more as like a David Foster type producer where I was a song and vocal guy. Hmm. So that's what I wanted my focus to be. Guitars, you know, what drum head you use, what guitar strings you use. And by the way, I'm still the same kind of producer. I don't, I delegate all that stuff. Like to me, I care more about what the record sounds like when you're walking through Walmart and you hear it on the speakers in the ceiling and you go, okay, that's a hit record because the vocal is great and the song is awesome. Sanctuary wasn't that kind of project. Sanctuary was about, you know, like the guitar, you know, it was about, you know, shredding and great guitar playing and great, you know, and, and uh, descriptive vocals that describe, it was like doing a Dungeons and Dragons record or something, you know, and it just wasn't in my wheelhouse. So when I went up to Seattle, I wasn't actually going to do the record at that point. We, we had to make a demo. And we ended up doing Future Tense. And that, as you can tell, is the most fleshed out song on the record. You know, that's the one that you have the most choruses. It's got a, you know, it's got a, uh, it, you know, it's got a, it's got a defined course. Let's put it that way. Mm. And a lot of that was because I think the band was just open to it. They really wanted to make a record. They were afraid they were going to lose their record deal, I think. So they were kind of listening to me at that point. So we did that one. We did one more murder and we did it as demos. Brought them back and the record company said, oh, you know what, Howard, you should produce this. Look at this. All of a sudden, Sanctuary is making songs as opposed to just like epic things with, with no choruses, you know? And I sort of went, okay, well, these guys sound like they want to do that. So we got in the studio and started, we decided to work together. And I got very lucky in that when I started doing a record, there was a young second engineer. He wasn't even a second engineer, this guy. He was literally getting the coffee. And he was just a, just some guy, right? And But he was so into that part of the record making, the guitar sound. The, the, you know, staying up all night recording guitar solos, that kind of thing. The thing that I, I mean, honestly, I just, I, I just couldn't relate to it that much, you know? And the guy's name is Joe Barisi. So he ended up getting his career started on that record because I, I kind of, you know, he now obviously produces Tool and A Perfect Circle, and he's like one of the great producers out there for metal records, you know? Mm-hmm. And that was one of his first albums, and most people don't really know that. But that was the first record that he really worked on where a producer like me gave him some latitude. Like I said to him, hey, Joe, you know what? I'm going to go home. Sean wants to play a solo on you know, Eden, a Lies Obscured. Just do I, I can't take it anymore. You know, <laughs> he just wouldn't stop playing the solo. So I, I left. And I came, I remember I came back the next morning at 9 in the morning or 10 in the morning. We were at Sound City. And he was still playing the solo, right? And I was just like, oh, my God. These guys are crazy. You know, so but Barisi was able to do it. Barisi was like still there, hammering away at it. You know, so it was kind of a, one of those kind of projects where I, I started to get more and more into it because we, I started using some digital technology at the time. I don't think the band was aware of it, but I was kind of using uh, doing some editing inside of um, 
uh, inside the computer and doing things like to make the songs a little tighter. But we ended up making, I thought, of, you know, at the end of the day, when I listened to it back, I said, you know what? I really love this. Like, I start falling in love with Eden and songs like that. But it wasn't, you know, the band would say crazy things like, we want the song to start with the left channel, then the right channel, then the left channel, then the right channel getting louder and louder and louder. And I'm like, how do we do this? You know, like this is before Pro Tools, you know? So Barisi would, me and him would just sit at the board and move all these faders at once. And it was a crazy project. So, you know, a lot of that was sort of, you know, maybe a lot of times when I'm not matched up well with a band, we actually do end up making a pretty good record. So I think that they, what they got out of me was songwriting focus, you know what I mean, on the songs. Uh And what I got out of them, I actually learned a lot from those guys, was to start being a little bit more aware that guitar players matter in, you know, rock music where it really matters what their sound is, you know? Yeah. And, you know, at that point, I was just like, who cares what the sound is? Let's get the songs right. Let's have choruses, Hmm. you know? So there was a little bit of a clashing. We didn't didn't really get along. I don't think... I got along really well with Whirl because Whirl, I love singers. I get along really well with my singers, all of them. And so I focused more on him. I think we actually had to put a pentagram down and he sang within a pentagram um, <laughs> at Sound City. Like we had to light the candles a whole bit. But, you know, I, I think we ended up doing it at Cornerstone is where we mixed it. All both studios, I think, are gone at this point. Hmm. But, um, but yeah, it was, you know, and I, don't, I think I never spoke to him again after the record. I mean, I literally think I might have gotten a, Later in my career, a text from or a Facebook message from Dave Budville and a couple other guys. But and I was really sad when Wall passed away because I really liked Wall. Wall was like, you know, he. I can't just like again for me. The focus is always on the vocals. So I probably pissed off Lenny and Sean and those guys a little bit. I remember Budville walking the studio with a huge fucking drum set. Like I never saw a drum set that big. Like I'm like, what do you need all these toms for? He's like. <laughs> Because in our business, more is, I, I would always say it's less is more. They're like, no, more is more. And I'm like, okay. You know? <laughs> so, you know, that's like sort of like, okay, more is more. So I have more guitar parts and more drums and more stuff and more this and more that and longer songs and crazy parts. And, you know, all right, you know. And then when I did uh, Sepultura, I was a little bit more prepared for Sepultura because I had already been through this with those guys. But Sepultura, when I did against that took it to another level. <laughs> I talk about songs with no choruses. I mean, yeah, he was like wondering, what are they doing? You know? Yeah, I, was I, like, I love that band. I'm, I'm a big fan of Sepultura. <laughs> you know, it's funny. When I went to Brazil, I produced that in Brazil. And uh, I actually didn't realize how big they were. They're like the friggin' Beatles. Yeah, massive. Like, oh my God. And I just ran into Andre- Andreas. I hadn't seen him in like 20 years. And I saw him at Nam. It was so good seeing him. And uh, those guys did not know how to not spend money. Like, like as opposed to Sanctuary, where we were on a budget. Sepultura was like, we don't care. We bankrupt the record company. We can do whatever we want. <laughs> you know? So I was like, yeah, okay. They're like, we're going to fly to the islands of uh, Japan before we call Dakota. I'm like, we are? You know? Like, <laughs> that's not cheap. You know? So, you know... Those are kind of funny, but but both bands had the shared thing that they were more about the uh, instrumentation than they were more. Really, the vocals, I think, shared the same importance, where in my world, I always put the vocalist like at the top of the pyramid. 
Hmm. You know, like he's at the top, like that's what I'm listening for. Like when I did my Chemical Romance, I mean that's one of the reasons that record turned out so well is when I met them, they were a band that was focused mostly on guitar. And then when I did Three Cheers, I focused mainly on Gerard. You okay. know, and that was you know, so that's how my career went. So I kind of forgot about Sanctuary a little bit. I will tell you one funny story. When I went to do the demos, we did it at a studio near the Puget Sound or wherever that sound is, the Seattle thing. There was a rat on the console when we came in one day. A dead <laughs> fucking rat. The biggest <laughs> fucking rat. And those guys never flinched. They didn't flinch. And I was just like, ah! You know, like, like it was, and they practiced, okay, you can't imagine, in a parking garage, like seven floors down, in Seattle, like the grossest shit ever, you know. Like I think the only grosser thing I saw were the Slam and Watusis where they practiced. They were they, that was, by the way, the same A and R guy that I did both bands. That's actually how I think I found Sanctuary was I had done the Slam and Watusis for him. Hmm. And so yeah, so that's the thing. That's why when somebody called up and said I went to the Mirror Black, I was like, wow, like this, like I didn't realize. But then it has become kind of. I've noticed that in my my feed, it's become kind of a classic. You know, I guess that there is a certain love for that album, but I'm not, can, maybe you can enlighten me what it is, because I don't know. Well, you know, I, I'm, I, I think some some of it, Howard, is, I think because Warl passed away, he'd done another record with him, and then a couple of years after that, they'd passed away, and right. I, I think there's the, the nostalgia thing as well, that all these anniversaries of all these records keep coming up, and as well as that, Howard, I think, there's certain albums that were released back then that were kind of ahead of the game sound wise. Um, and like when I spoke to Lenny, I said, you guys were kind of a cross between Queensryche and maybe something like metal church. And he he kind of agreed with that. And, but there was no other band really that sounded like sanctuary. They, they had Warl as a vocalist who was a big part of it. Yeah. he, 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 he had a unique voice. And yeah. um, I think I think a lot of people either love his voice or they just couldn't latch onto it at all. Oh, he was operatic, and that's kind of what like I had to get used to that a little bit because I'm not used to that kind of voice. Hmm. But I sort of loved when he dug in. Like I, that's one of the things I brought to the project is I made sure he dug into the lyrics and really said like you know got the angry part out. Like, I wanted him to be more angry than really operatic on the record. I remember saying that to him, actually. Mm. Um, and one thing I remember saying, too, to Lenny, Lenny said to me, actually, Lenny, I, by the way, I did love Lenny and Sean. They were cool guys. I, I just remember we had trouble relating to each other because I was, I just was a different, you know, I was coming off of an R&B career almost. I started as an R&B producer, so, like, all of a sudden, I'm doing rock bands, and, like, like not only a rock band, but like one of the heaviest rock bands out there, you know? Yeah. And so I was just like trying to readjust my hearing to what they were doing. But Lenny actually, you can tell Lenny tortured me one day. I remember he said he was standing next to his amp and he goes, I don't like how it sounds in front of the amp. I don't like it sounds in back of the amp. I like how it sounds right when I stand to the side of the amp. So I remember saying to the engineer at the time, a guy named Scott, I said, how do we mic the side of the amp? There's no speaker there. You know? <laughs> so we set up a mic at the side of the amp, right? Where, where he was, you know, he was like, he was like right out of Spinal Tap, you know, he's like, it's not here. No, it's right here. No, back just in it, you know, no forward a quarter inch, no, right there. 
that's it, right there, you know? And I was like, I didn't like the guitar sound. It was like, it had that, and you know who they were trying to emulate was Randy Rhodes. I remember the time it was like, we got to get the Randy Rhodes sound. And I'm like, who's Randy Rhodes? Like, I don't even come from that world. Like, I'm trying to study up on my Aussie records and all this kind of stuff. So it was a funny match, them and me. It was mm. definitely not the kind of, it's not, I wasn't like, I, I think if they'd been more aware of what I was really like as a producer and I was more aware of what they were like, we may not have ended up working together, but maybe that's why we made a good record. I don't know. Mm. Howard, you know? That happens a lot. Actually. Howard, who, who, who was the leader of the band? Like if you wanted something to get through Lenny. to the band, le- definitely Lenny, yeah? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Lenny was the guy who, you know, he, he was the, um, you know, the guy I went to, the go-to guy okay. know, for me. And what so, what what yeah. per, what parameters did the label set you? Because up until then you'd done hard rock bands, and you know they're trying to get songs on the radio. But you're going in doing Sanctuary, and you're not really going to get these songs on the radio. So what did the label tell you to do? Nothing at all. There was absolutely no guidance. It was just they owe us another record. Can you give us a couple songs and maybe we can get? Now remember at the time there was K and A C out here. So yeah, there was the that was a metal station and metal blade records was kind of doing well at the time. So that was more of a metal blade band, really, you know, I mean, they would have been more at home on that label, but Epic signed them. And, you know, they just said, you know, after we came up with that, those first, you know, one more murder and uh future tense, they thought they could get those on the radio. I never thought we could get those on the radio, but they were the closest things they had two songs they could get on the radio. And if you notice on the songwriting credits, I think I'm credited as a writer on both those songs. Yeah, you are. So, um, yeah. So I kind of added, you know, my, uh, you know, a little bit of that. I mean, look, they wrote the songs, there's no doubt about it, but I nudged them into pop world a little. So the choruses, you know, so, you know, I think that made the, ba- the label a little bit more happy. And they just said, Oh, if you can do this again with the rest of the songs. And of course the band was like, I think they wised up at that point. They were like, we're not doing the rest of the record like that. We're going to make some, you know, sanctuary record with, you know, riffs and riffs and riffs and drum parts and riffs and drum parts. And, you know, well, uh, you know, they were going to go back to what they were used to. So I think maybe those first few songs that were more single-ish led the record company to believe the rest of the record was going to be like that. And it just wasn't like that, Hmm. you know? So, Hmm. I mean, there's no way I could have controlled Nowadays, I wouldn't let that happen. You know what I mean? Like, I would be saying to the band, hey, you know, look, if you're going to hire me, you want hit records, and if you're going to do this, I'm not interested in working with you. Mm. you know? But in those days, it was a different story for me. I had to, like, you know, I, I they were, were going to make that record. So I just helped them do the best I could. I think I was very lucky to sort of have, uh, you know, uh, Lenny really kept the shit moving. You know, I remember Lenny was very organized yeah. about it, you know. so Who was, um, who was the toughest guy to get a Sean. performance out of it. Sean. Yeah. yeah. Any yeah. particular Sean was look. Um he was just uh let's put it this way, supremely talented guy. That's what I remember. Like he had a million ideas, but he suffered from that thing that lots of people have in our business where, hey, let me show you how many ideas I have as opposed to this is the idea. So, you know, you can sit you know, as you know, if you play an instrument, you can sit around and you can throw a million ideas out, but that's not what we're there for. We're there to try to get the best idea, you know? And if we start putting millions of ideas out, it becomes a mess after a while. After a while, you don't know which way is up. So, you know, it just, I just never, 
he was he was super particular. But by the way, you know, I I think he taught me something, Sean. I remember thinking I really enjoyed what he did later. Like Eden, I think was his song, and that's like my third favorite song on the record. And I remember thinking, you know what? And again, I remember I'm a young producer. I only produced two or three records at that point. I've done about 150 records now, but that was my second or third album. And I remember thinking, you know what? Sometimes the guys who are like that are the ones you have to pay attention to because they may be seeing it. Like, like a lot of times when you meet a band, there'll be one guy that then that doesn't fit in with the band or they don't like him or they have trouble with him and blah, blah, blah. And a lot of times that guy is actually more truthful musically than the rest of the guys. But, but because he's not, he's not groupthink, you know, you know what I mean? Like he's not just agreeing to agree. Yeah. He, he has a vision and, I always call that the bullshit monitor guy, like the cheese meter guy, you know, huh. like he's never going to let us go cheesy. Yeah. You know, so Sean was that guy, but you know, as a producer, it's hard to deal with guys like that because you know, you're always fighting with them. Uh, you know, it's just a constant battle for control and all that, you know, and I don't honestly even remember who the bass player was. The bass, I have it in front of me, Jim Shepard. Okay. I remember Jim now. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Um, yeah. Now tracking the vocals for this, um, was Warrell open to all your ideas on how Absolutely. he was to sing? He was. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. How, did it take long to do the vocals on this? Um, yeah, because it, back then we had to punch everything. But the one thing I had was really good pitch, and I developed it from being in bands my whole life. You know, before I became a producer, I was in a lot of cover bands. And, you know, uh, my original bands I was in were terrible. But one thing you get from being in cover bands where you play lots of other people's songs is you get a really good sense of pitch because you're playing really good in tune songs already. So I was able to get him to sing really, I remember he had, he sang sharp a lot. Well, and I think I used a few really like a couple of like studio trickery to get his voice to be in tune. Uh But I think he was a really, I think generally speaking, he pre delivered for me, you know? Yeah. I don't remember the process too much, but I just remember I liked doing vocals with him. You know, when he got operatic, I didn't love it that much, but like, I liked it when he got, you know, aggressive. I thought hmm. it sounded really good. Yeah. You know. Now, Howard, so. when when you mix the record, um, are you someone who likes to go away and mix it on your own and you don't want any of the band members' input or do you want them to listen to rough mixes? You know what? I don't remember how we mixed it. I think we mixed it at Cornerstone with Joe Barisi. I think he might be credited as a mixer on that one. I don't really remember. Yeah, it's Corner, but, Cornerstone um, Recorders, Chatsworth, California. Mixed. That's right, Cornerstone. Yeah. So, um, luckily Joe was really into, like he, that was his first major credit. And I think he just really helped me get through that. And I think that I remember the band came in. It's a blur to be honest. Yeah. I mean, I've done so many things since then. It's really hard to think about the mixing, but I do remember we had to do like quite a few mixes to get them, but they weren't as bad. You know, it's funny. Like I've had way worse experiences with mixing than with these guys. So um, I thought they were actually not too bad. I think the hardest part were the guitar tones, honestly. That was, I remember just suffering. I just couldn't tell anymore, hmm. you know, what we were doing. We were just going through so many, we just could never get it right. We couldn't get, I, I, they were just never happy with the guitar sounds. Hmm. And I'm not, when I listen to the record, I'm not nuts about them either, but I can kind of see what, they just sound really like there's no mid-range in them, you know, like I'm used to a lot more mid-range where I, that's where a lot of the tone comes from on like regular, you know, like rock records, but on these metal records, a lot of times they duck the mids out. So you hear, you don't hear as much of the mids. Mm. So that's a record where there just weren't a lot of mids in it. Yeah. I, I just got a couple of questions left, Howard. Um, 
Sure. Warrell Dane, I have a, a quote from him here on his days in Sanctuary. And he said it was a horrible, horrible experience. And he says, number one, because the people in the band really didn't like each other very much. Did you get a sense of that right. in the studio? Yes. Okay. And how, how are you able to handle that? Because you're the producer, you're the guy in charge. You kind of have to be like a, a human resource manager as well. Well, I wasn't that good at it at that point. You know, I could have been better. Um, I was a little scared of him, to be honest, because they worked with Dave Mustaine. And again, I was not the, the Howard Benson I am now. So I kind of felt like I didn't, I didn't have any plaques on the wall. So, you know, I always kind of joke with people when they come to my studio, they see all these gold and platinum records and they go, well, you got this huge ego. Like, no, I don't. It's that the bands come into my studio and they see all these gold and platinum records and they listen to me. Because if I didn't see them, they wouldn't listen to me. And I didn't have them with Sanctuary. So they weren't really listening to me as much as I wanted. I, like, I was trying to keep things together, get my, get better. But, you know, they just come from a record with Dave Mustaine. So I was, you know, at the time, not the biggest producer in the world. You know, I was kind of assigned to it again by the label. So, you know, I did the best I could with it. But, you know, that's why I think... I mean, I mean, again, not trying to take anything away from me, but I think a stronger hand in the studio may have say either may have, it would have made it maybe either smoother or may have blown up in their face. Hard to know. Right? Uh. Nobody knows. Uh. So you know, I just was really out of my element. You know, I did a Rascal Flatts record about eight years ago in Nashville, and it was almost the same experience. I had never done a country record, and I literally, after all the hit records I've had. I still felt like a fish out of water during that country record. And it was because I just didn't know the people. I didn't know the, you know, the tempo of Nashville. I didn't know that, you know, there's a certain way they do things. And I think with that, with that band, it was a certain way they did things that they were used to with Dave. So, you know, uh, although with their selection not to work with Dave again, I believe, or Dave was, or maybe it was Dave. Actually, I actually don't know what, I don't know what happened with that. I really, I, I really don't know. I asked Lenny yeah. and Le Lenny couldn't answer it either. He kind of felt that Dave didn't want to do the record. And then they found out later on that Dave was annoyed that he, he, he might, he wanted to do the record. And it was a lot of cross messages there. I think what probably Dave saw this is just hypothesis is that that band did not get along very well. And who wants to go through that again? You know, that's most likely because I remember it was Warhol's right. It was really difficult to do that. Right? Like I said that up front. That's why I was surprised anybody like, uh, like, wow, that was one of the harder records just because there was just so much arguing. And, you know, music business is kind of different back then, though. You're kind of at the whim of the record company. You know, if you're a band now, you have so much more freedom and so many more things you can do outside of the record company. But back then, if the record company said, you're going to make your record, you made your record, right? That was it. They, they said, you didn't make your record, you didn't make your record. You had any choice hmm. in the matter. So, you know, it was a bit more, you know, you were at their whim. So I think the band also suffered because of that. They did, oh, by the way, and they were right about this. The record company didn't believe in these guys at all. They, they couldn't have cared less. I mean, they didn't care. They didn't ever show up. They didn't listen to anything. Bob Pfeiffer was a pop guy. He ended up, you know, exiting out of the music business. You know, this wasn't really anybody looking at us. So we just did whatever we did. That was it. They never, they never even called you in the studio to see how it was going. Phone no. call. Wow. Not, no, not once. Okay, so the, the band, the band. No matter if you had done the Black album, the Metallica Black album, the band were done anyway. As far as you were, they were concerned with the label. Oh yeah. 
But they didn't, I think the band was so, I think Wall touches on something here that is a thread that the band just didn't get along so well. And they were so, I remember Bob said to me, it's almost like why he brought me in. He just didn't want to deal with it. And he knew I needed to, I wanted to work at that time. I needed to work. And he's like, hey, you do it. You know, you want a project, dude? Howard, you know, you preach one record? Here, do this one. We'll see if you're any good. You know? And so that's how it went. I mean, I, I didn't know these guys. Mm-hmm. I've never heard of them. You know? I mean, I didn't know who they were. Like, I seriously never listened to that kind of music. That's the stuff that I used to run to Mike Saley from Metal Blade. And he'd say, yeah, we just put out the latest, you know, so-and-so record. I, was like, I don't even know. I don't know what record you <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Any of this stuff. But I actually ended up doing a Mossy record for, for Metal Blade after that. Okay. It's funny. And Alex, Alex Mossy. <laughs> you ever hear that guy? <laughs> yes, I have, yeah. Yeah, I did. Uh, I actually wrote his biggest song called uh, God Promised the Paradise from his um, Downtown Dreamers record. One of the more forgettable albums I've ever done. But... Um, <laughs> Huh. It was it was a chaotic time in my career, but I'm sure in sanctuaries at the time. Yeah. So when when you finished this record, I'm guessing that the overriding emotion you had was relief to Thank get you. it. Was it? Thank <laughs> really? I just wanted to get paid and get out of there. It was that bad. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, you know what it was? It was it was that I didn't like it that much. I mean, at the time, I just thought it's all right. Like Future Tense and the songs that were songs I got. But I remember how much we suffered doing Eden and how much long that song took. I don't even remember the rest of the songs, but I just remember how Eden, I mean, Sean was super intent on getting Eden. And I was happy that we got him happy with that. So it was, kind of, it was a weird emotion I had about it because I was really happy that he got what he wanted. But it took so much out of me. And out of even Joe at the time and the engineer and everything, we were just like, oh God, this band, you know. But these guys can last like another year. The labels, never, the labels never. Epic Records, first of all, is a major label. You know, if you send that, to, if you put that on Metal Blade, it's one thing. At least you're going to get the scene. At the time, the zines. You know what I mean? You're going to get like, you know, I don't even know what Kerrang or Metal Edge. I'm not sure that those, those magazines were alive at that point. But you're going to get those magazines. But Epic didn't know anything about that stuff. I don't even know what Epic signed these guys. Hmm. You know, I mean, it was so left field for them. The Science Sanctuary. I think I know? think I think Howard designed them to have a band like that on the label because all the other labels had the same type of band. You're right. You're right. It's You're right. you know, I think Megadeth and Metallica were starting to blow up and yeah. probably Mustaine endorsed them and you know, just one of those things. So, mm. But the, the funny know. the but fun, they didn't do their homework. Yeah, the know? fun the funny thing about this album and I mentioned it to Lenny, how I found out about this band is Epic released all these albums in a short space of time in Ireland and Europe and I'm not sure about the US and they were doing offers on them like buy one get one free kind of a thing so you had a brand new record you had a brand new record out and this was in the pile and I just took picked it up by chance I'd heard good things about it and and I loved it but that'll tell you about the labels mentality back then it was like we'll get we'll put the new album out we won't do anything really to promote it and we'll just try and get rid of it Get rid of them exactly because they could write off to get one free one and write it as a tax write off. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So that's what labels used to do back then, or they would put it in the basement of Columbia Epic Records and flood the basement and then say that they flooded <laughs> the basement. You know, that's what they did with uh, Sergeant Pepper's. That that the, the remake of that one when they did it with um, remember the Bee Gees or I forget who it was, Elton John or something. I don't know. They did a remake and 
or Tommy, I forget, one of those bad records that Polygram used to do, and, and they couldn't sell them. They put them in the basement, turn on the sprinklers, you know, and then say, oh, we just lost a million records and write them off, you know? Wow. So, <laughs> those are the good old days. Yeah. So, so, <laughs> so, Howard, what are you working on now? What am I working on now? I'm doing a new Three Days Grace record now. Okay. And uh, this will be my fourth album with them. I do a lot of multiple band albums, actually. I get, like, I sort of have a good stable of clients. I have a record company, which is more important to me than anything right now. It's uh, called Judge and Jury Records, which this artist named Diamante assigned to that label. And she's doing incredibly well right now. We started, you know, we took her from Better Noise Records and uh, signed her. And she's this 23-year-old rock, uh, blue-haired rock singer who's just amazing. I love working with her. Hmm. And uh, I just put out a Apocalyptica song uh, with Lizzie Hale singing. Okay. Uh, duet and i just put out a in flames we, we did their claiming record and, and by the way i have to give sanctuary credit here and sepultura i could never have worked with in flames in flames is a bit more pop than those bands but there's still elements of, of sanctuary and inside in flames you know this very you know epic gothic kind of metal music so um i've done two albums with in flames i also have a junk bunny record out this year, I have um, a new 10 Years record just came out that I produced, and that came out yesterday, actually, or uh, last Friday, that's right. Okay. So, yeah. You're, inc- you're incredibly busy. Well, somebody has to produce this stuff, right? Yeah, it's, it's, be me. I've spoken to a lot of producers over the years, and I don't know what it is, but none of them want to stop working. Even with all the changes in the music business, they still love what they do. And obviously, I'm, I've never spoken to you before, but you were obviously the same as the rest of them. Yeah. I think that we're kind of like, um, I always equate my career to Brett Farr, the quarterback. Like, I hope I know when it's time to hang up the cleats, right? <laughs> I don't want to overstay my welcome. Yeah. I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to be, you know, this playing for Liverpool too long, you know, and then they fan to me. I've been to a Liverpool match, so I don't want to be in that stadium when they start hating on you. So, I mean, I just don't know when that is. And part of the reason, by the way, I started the record label is to, is to kind of edge into more of an executive thing, which I've always wanted to do. So by having the label and having a few bands signed, it's a different level of involvement. Like, you know, you're dealing with streaming issues and, you know, and uh, algorithms and, you know, TikTok and Instagram and YouTube and all kinds of like collection. You know, it's, it's pretty cool. Actually. I kind of, I think the streaming thing has absolutely reinvigorated the rock business. It's made it viable. I mean, I think I would, I wouldn't want to be in any other business than the rock business. I think it's still great business to be in Mm. that business for longevity for people who never, you know, you have uh, loyal people who listen to music. You know, all you have to do is go to Louder Than Life or, or these festivals. And man, there's, you're telling me rock is dead? Are you kidding me? You know? Yeah. It might be dead in New York and L.A., but it's not dead in the rest of the country. You know? Mm. So, I don't know. People get really kind of, you know, wrapped up in that kind of like talking point. But I don't believe, I, I at least for me, I don't see it. Mm. You know? Yeah. So, well... Howard, I'm, I'm going to leave you go. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, and thanks for thanks for your time. Okay, man, say hi to Lenny for me, and tell him I hope I didn't make I hope I didn't make them sound too bad. But uh, <laughs> you want you wanted the truth. I there did. I did. Thanks, Howard. Have a, <laughs> have a good rest of the night. Okay. Take care of yourself. All right. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, metalheads. Kind of a long one this week, uh, longer than at least the last couple of weeks. But anyways, lots of good stuff there, and we really wanted to get in 
as much as possible with Lenny and Howard. Definitely interesting to look at the two viewpoints between what Lenny remembers and what Howard remembers with working with the band and all that good stuff. And in fact, Richie even, uh, he told me that he actually sent the Howard interview over to Lenny. Let Lenny take a look at it or take a listen to it, that is, in uh yeah, Lenny thought it was pretty interesting. Yeah, nothing bad to say or anything like that, but uh, yeah, just, you know, here we are 30 years later closing the producer and artist loop. And if you haven't already, I definitely would urge you guys to go and pick up your own copies of the 30th anniversary reissue of Into the Mirror Black. And, uh, you know, a couple versions of that available, as I was saying, and uh, in my usual way, and I'm sure Richie will give me crap for it, but I did pick up both the vinyl and the CD versions of it. Uh, one for convenience, one just because, yeah, you know, I kind of like the vinyl. It's, it's a nostalgia thing for me. Yeah, I wasn't able to get the uh, the very limited gray vinyl edition. I had to get the old plain black vinyl, but uh, hey, you can't have everything, right? So hope you guys enjoyed this week's episode. For next week right now, what we're thinking is we will be running an interview with author Steve Pilkington all about his brand new Iron Maiden book entitled Iron Maiden. Every album, every song. And that's rather timely coming off of the Martin Birch episode as well. And uh, Richie kind of used that Martin episode as some fodder for discussion with Steve as they went through uh, all these questions about the Maiden discography. And after that, if the schedule holds true and, you know, you never know, things slip in, we get hit up for stuff, then uh, we're looking at doing a double episode of another classic album in the metal canon and uh, one that was also recently reissued, and one that Richie and I have had some uh, back and forth about recently. And those two episodes will feature a bass player we've had on the show before, and also another legendary producer that uh, we haven't had on the show yet. And I was even thinking about that. Maybe, you know, we, I'd like to go back with Richie and try to remember all the different producers we've actually had on the show and uh, see how many of them we've, we've hit from that master list of legendary guys out there. And while I'm at it, just got to throw the plug in here as well. Be on the lookout because the brand new film from our buddy Bob Nalbandian is heading your way to your little ear holes and eye holes. That is uh, the next edition of Inside Metal, the Godfathers of Bay Area Metal Part 1. And that will be be heading your way shortly. You can always head up to uh, Metal Rock Films as well. I think you can get that ordered right now. Yeah, so be on the lookout for that. I, for one, am so looking forward to seeing that one. But anyways, that is it for this week. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So for Richie, myself, everybody else here at Focus on Metal, have yourselves a great metal week. Be safe out there. And until we talk to you again, as always, remember... Focus on Metal! Everything else is insignificant. Still here? It's over. Go home.